It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as your hosts discuss the 2013 film, Enemy. Here we go. Yeah, this one I guess we built up a little bit with our Prisoners episode. Um, I, I can't remember. Did you say if you knew anything about this movie at all? If you heard about it really before? Not at all. Mm. Not at all. I had heard of it mentioned as one of his notable works, and that's about it. Yeah, this is one I definitely feel like super flew under the radar. Which makes sense, because <laughs> almost everything else that he did around this time was a lot more mainstream, but this was definitely the kind of maybe reaching back to his more indie stuff. I haven't really seen anything before Prisoners, so I'm not really sure what that early stuff was like. But, but yeah, when I first saw Prisoners, I was like, pretty good movie. This guy seems to have like an interesting style to him. Um, definitely would check out more of his work. And then I saw Enemy, and I was immediately like, okay, this guy is definitely one of the more interesting filmmakers working today. But I think when I first saw it, I maybe didn't understand it as well as I feel like I do now in the second viewing. But, because now it, it doesn't seem as nearly as mystifying. I'm not sure why I thought it was so mystifying the first time, but... But what would you think? Hmm. I thought you wouldn't think that... Because did both these movies come out in the same year, this and Prisoners? Same year, yeah. You wouldn't necessarily think this is done by the same person. Um... Prisoners feels less like a what we consider a typical Villeneuve movie now uh, with his newer works. Prisoners seems less like that, whereas Enemy very much feels like his body of work Mm. um, more recently. So there's that. Uh, I will say I went into this under uh unideal conditions meaning I had distractions and I was not comfortable and I wasn't necessarily in the right frame of mind to be starting a new movie Mm. Um, but I overcame that uh, as I got into it Well, and I will say too because I didn't really spoil too much or I didn't really spoil anything for myself going in so what struck me almost halfway into the movie was how can this be real? Hmm. Um, meaning oh, meaning a bunch of things. <laughs> how could these guys be so identical but but not be related, just be two random strangers? 
how could like and like the scar thing was really throwing me um for a while but then even if we just acknowledge that fine these two guys just look that much similar um like because usually my brain would have whatever movie i'm watching it tries to frame it as like is this realistic does the psychology of the characters hold up like is this what real people would do in these situations <laughs> and it wasn't the math wasn't working out um you know halfway into the movie which was bothering me because because the two Halls, that there's the teacher and there's the aspiring actor if i just focused on either the teacher or the actor they didn't seem consistent their personalities and see that was bothering me because that doesn't make sense to me now once you've watched the whole movie what didn't make sense before suddenly starts making a lot more sense but that's not till you watch the whole movie but just saying that was bothering me because mm. things were not adding up at all and so I, I couldn't understand what that meant so yeah yeah and of course it definitely seems like the director's intent i mean the whole movie you're supposed to be off kilter and i mean they do weird things that come out of nowhere the music is unusual like i love that first um dream sequence right after he watches the movie suddenly the whole look of the film changes it's all silent and this weird music's playing and i i thought that scene was super cool i remember that really pulling me in the first time i watched it and just the kind of oppressive vibe and look of the movie. Like it just looks off the whole the whole film. Yeah, now, is this or is this not an A24 movie? Uh, it's not. It feels like it should have been, but no. It does. It really does. It has the A24 vibes, as they say. The music, even though it's not exactly the same, it just reminded me of the music from Under the Skin. I don't know if you ever saw that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And that has a very unique soundtrack. Um, and this reminded me of that a lot. Yeah, it's the same year as well. Oh. Oh, I actually checked, and they did distribute it in the States, but but only only there. And, um, yeah, I don't think they were even producing films at that time. So, yeah, they, they didn't have anything to do with the production. But, mm. but yeah, definitely, definitely this feels like it could be absolutely within their catalog. Feels a lot like it. Mm. Toronto? looked the way it's shot it looks extremely huge Mm. in the long and wide shots yeah i was just looking at it i almost thought like it was like they do something similar with um metropolis like in superman returns like uh and probably in man of steel as well i'm not sure but in other words it's not really a real city i mean they use cgi to make it an exaggerated metropolis, no pun intended. <laughs> um, so it just feels like a like a, a Manhattan Island that never ends. And I almost thought that they did something like that to Toronto because it just seems like humongous. Uh, I guess it's just the way it's shot. Um, I visited Toronto once a long time ago. Hmm. I don't remember much about it. I mean, I remember what we did, but I don't remember. I didn't spend that much time up and in the city. I just don't remember it being so humongous. But again, I think it's just the way it was shot. And when I yeah. say humongous, 
I don't just mean, I mean land area, but I also mean height as well. Mm. So vertically and horizontally, it seems humongous. Yeah, it looks like a city of just skyscrapers. I've never been to Toronto. I mainly know the city through uh, David Cronenberg films. So <laughs> so I really appreciated seeing this more modern kind of look at the city. It's like, oh, it looks, it, it looks similar to the Cronenberg kind of cold mm. aesthetic, but yeah, much, much taller and much bigger. So... Oh, oh, there's that doorman. I'm just watching that opening scene in that weird, I guess, live sex performance, and I didn't realize that the doorman was there when I was watching. That's another thing. I was completely... Like, I had just woken up late in the afternoon. Uh, and so, I like, my brain wasn't fully processing the beginning of the movie. Mm. I was like, I don't even know what this is. Like, I don't even know what's happening. I couldn't even tell what that was. Um, I mean, where he even was or what was going on. I know now. I went back and looked, but I'm saying I was like waking up, so I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, this this opening here, one, I just, I love the way it looks, but it kept making me think of Eyes Wide Shut for whatever reason. Oh, of course. It's not a huge connection, but I just kept thinking of it. Same. Yeah, and, and this is one of those movies where I f- really feel the Cronium, or not the Cronenberg, the uh, the Kubrick touch with Villeneuve. Same. Let me say his name. I don't think um, Stanley Kubrick ever went this much into abstract film, except for maybe 2001. But in that one, I don't feel as nearly as as abstract necessarily. But but you can definitely feel that same kind of deliberate, deliberate, uh, oppressive kind of tone running throughout it, which I feel like is. Let's kind of say maybe in Shining as well. Uh, yeah, I I suppose so. I, I I'm not sure with that one, but but it's been a while since I've seen it. It's been like maybe like eight years or something like that. Not when I go back to ever. So <laughs> I think there's some parallels between that one and this one, um, because it's very much a uh, what is the word? Um, Psychological thriller or something? No, 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 I mean it is that, but it, that's not what I wanted to say. It was. I can't think of my words right now, but it's when you're analyzing a character, like digging deep into a particular character. There's a better way to say it. I can't find my words right now. Character study, or that that doesn't seem right. Some type of analyzation or something. Uh, Introspection. I don't know. Something. But (laughs) that's what's going on in The Shining very much, and some of it some of that introspection is surreal or not your what you're seeing on film is not necessarily reality in certain parts of the yeah. shining and i think there's some of that in this and this is also a deep character study as well or a am i trying to think deconstruction of a character maybe that's what i'm trying to say something like that yeah deconstruction with that hmm I suppose I could see that being what this is, yeah. Try to put it into words. Uh, I think very much so, if I'm using my words correctly. I yeah. think very much so in this movie is what it's about. Also, I watched this on Voodoo, and I was wondering why the running time was longer than advertised uh, on Voodoo. Because after the movie's over, there's like a 20-minute conversation with um, Villeneuve and uh, oh. Hall together. Oh, cool. Which, where they pretty much explain, I mean, 
Oh, really? <laughs> what he was going for in the movie. Oh, so he's not a he's not a Nolan type or a, a David Lynch. No, he didn't leave much to the imagination. Once you watch that piece, oh damn, it's kind of spelled out <laughs> what's going on. Oh, that's a little less fun. Oh, in case you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious to fill in any holes because. Well, I, I mean, I kind of had it figured out, too, kind of, by the time I finished the movie. But if there was any doubt in my mind, he set me straight. <laughs> yeah, I'll be curious to see if we have any holes that I need to jump to that to see about filling. But <laughs> but I was, I was also going to mention, have you ever heard of the film I'm Thinking of Ending Things? No, I have not. Yeah, it's directed by uh, Charlie Kaufman. And it's another one like this where basically everything you're seeing like is fragments of reality but none of it is actually happening in the sequence that you're watching none of it's really a real story it's just kind of like pieces of someone's life stapled together in a way and and so i really felt a connection with these two movies and maybe maybe that's one of the reasons i found it much easier to understand what this was going for seeing it now well that. that is really weird that you bring that up because of course we were just talking about citizen kane um before we started talking about this movie and obviously that movie is very well known for being told in segments and out of sequence and jumps around in time so that's interesting but also um and i kind of felt it uh, as i was watching it but then when i was just googling real quick after i watched the movie i just saw where someone mentioned uh that this was like Villeneuve's like memento in a way which mm. I can 100% see but I also see it a bit as being like a combination of his memento and following uh, Christopher Nolan's following and you were saying how this movie is Kubrickian which I agree with but this is another one that also feels very Nolan-esque <laughs> as well uh, to me very very because yeah I can definitely see it, but again, I don't think Nolan's ever made anything this abstract. Again, the closest thing would probably be Memento or Following. Yeah. Because those are both movies that are also told out of sequence, um, and you get segments out of order. And Yeah, the difference is, with this movie, again, is like the whole plot of it is something that's not really real, in a way. Whereas both yeah. those movies, you know, there is still something that you could track and have a through line all the way through. This one yes. is much more... Oh, go ahead. That, no, that's true. That's true. However, I think the events in this movie are happening. It's But we're seeing them through... We're seeing interpretations of true events. We're not seeing the actual true events. Yeah, I was wondering how much of it was, if anything was really actually happening, or if this is just someone, in a way, processing, or if we're just seeing the process in their mind, or something in that way. Like someone having like a mental breakdown, and this is not necessarily what they're experiencing, but just kind of, it just, it's such a, it's difficult to put into words what I, what I'm thinking in my head. But <laughs> no, 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 I, I think more or less all the events happened. We are just seeing them through a um, unreliable narrator's point of view. Yeah, I think all the events except for the 
separation of the two individuals is the part where I'm, I more mean like the core plot of this teacher discovering that there's an identical version of himself somewhere. I think all that stuff, right? you know, is more like the inner processing. Okay, ideally, and this could be really confusing for someone listening to this who has no idea yeah. what the plot is. <laughs> yes, very much. <laughs> but, okay, if you want to get down to it, I believe the intent is there's only one Jake Gyllenhaal that ever existed. Mm-hmm. But he is both of these people. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is true. And I think the interactions that happen with either his girlfriend or his wife also are happening. Mm -hmm. Like I said, we're just getting it told from an unreliable narrator's point of view. But it's all based on true events that happen to the singular Jake Gyllenhaal character. Yeah, and it's difficult to say which one is most likely the the one that the, the person thinks is their main person. I feel like the one he thinks is himself is the teacher. And there's this other part of him, the actor, the person who's like this sexual I deviant. Mean, do you have to choose, though? No, you don't have to choose because, yeah, they're they're one person. I just mean which I one. I would agree the more dominant one or the one we more uh, associate with is the teacher one. Yeah, I more mean the one that he thinks of himself as. Because it's, it's sort of this, the two meeting and being like, I'm, I'm frightened by myself. I'm, I don't recognize this other side of me. So it's more like which one... I suppose it's probably the teacher because yeah, that's the one that we spend the more time with. Also, then... the teacher is the more is the of the two is the one more grounded in reality. The actor is more the one is more the side of him living in the dream. And I suppose the teacher is probably the most recent one. That's probably the life that he's really living at that time. And then the actor is his past because we see he's got that crumpled up picture and he tore off the the side with his ex wife in it. So. So I guess it's yeah, kind of having to maybe maybe even now in the future he's almost. I mean, clearly the stuff with his girlfriend is not going super well, so maybe he feels that temptation to cheat again, and that's why he's kind of being pulled back into this old version of himself and having to kind of reconcile like who he was, something like that. It's unclear because see, at, for a moment I was thinking he was having both both things were happening simultaneously not exactly as depicted in the movie but i was leaning towards that he was still with his wife and cheating on his wife but then in hindsight that may not be true uh, for some of the reasons you mentioned just now um yeah and even his mom when we finally meet her oh from from blue velvet by the way i was super pumped to see her i was like oh from what? I she was in this uh, she's in blue velvet Oh, blue velvet. I thought you said who velvet, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. She says, "Oh, you, you know, you had to, you know, just try to focus on yourself. You, you know, you already struggle sticking with one woman." So I was like, "Okay, so he clearly he's had some kind of public, you know, cheating scandal. At least that the mom knows about." So that's why I was thinking maybe you know the marriage was in the past. And speaking of blue velvet, it's a it's a very David Lynch type of movie as well. Oh yeah absolutely very much with what's real and what's not oh and i i just wanted to mention because we haven't brought them up yet but both the the girlfriend and the wife actor did you recognize either one of them um the girlfriend absolutely easily yeah there you go <laughs> yeah immediately when i saw her i was like oh shoshana <laughs> i don't know the actor's name yeah it's... absolutely but would i recognize the other one from somewhere else the wife uh, i only know her because i recently did that david cronenberg retrospective 
Yeah, and sandwiched between this film, she did Cosmopolis and Maps to the Stars, which are both in this same abstract, abstract kind of story. So I guess she was just doing a bunch of art films at the time. Um, so that's, that's almost mildly distracting in this movie that both of them were gorgeous in their own ways. Yeah, and very similar as well. Movie's got a type. <laughs> kind of, I, I guess you could say that. But yeah, no, absolutely. Especially, I mean, I I like Sarah Gadden who plays the wife, but yeah, the Shoshana actor. Yeah, super gorgeous. I mean, I always really loved her in Inglorious Bastards. I found them both gorgeous. I leaned towards the wife if I had to choose, but they were both gorgeous in this movie. And that's, well, I know it shouldn't matter uh, when you try to figure out these types of stories, whether it was real life or just a movie, mm-hmm. how hot they are. But there's a Cro-Magnon part of my brain which is like, dude, the wife is so hot, how could you cheat on her? Or the other one's so hot, how could you screw that up? But I know that doesn't really matter in the whole scheme of things, uh, how hot somebody really is, because if anyone's ever had any dating experience, you know, at the end of the day, somehow hotness doesn't matter anymore when other things become a problem. Yeah, and for for some people, monogamy just isn't their thing, and there's always going to be that desire for something new. Just can't be helped. (laughs) What? (laughs) Never heard such a theory postulated before. Yeah, you know, if you if you got a spider in you, perhaps, which the spider was the thing that confused me a lot the first time I watched it, especially that scene, that little dream sequence where we see the naked girl walking down the hallway. She's got a spider's face, and we end with that spider. I was like, okay, I'm. I feel like I'm missing the symbolism here, but I, I think it. I think I got a grasp on it much more this time around, with just it being kind of the the symbol of the the dangerous lust that he has. The image of the spider walking amongst the the cityscape. Oof. Mm-hmm. What I've seen that. Why have I seen that before somewhere? Or I don't know if I saw that and someone made like a clip, like a clip video or something. I've absolutely seen that before, but I don't know where. If you've ever picked up the Blu-ray, that's the the picture of it. It's Jake oh. Gyllenhaal looking down with a cityscape and the spider walking across it above his head. Hmm. Maybe I saw that. Maybe I saw that years ago and don't remember. Yeah, it's a pretty cool cover, and it also has a nice surrealist aspect to it. So a little bit of a, a little bit of a warning, I guess. <laughs> but no, I, I love that scene of it just stalking across the city. I think that's great. Really, super cool. But what does it mean in that context? That context, I'm not sure. It might have just been a cool image. It, it, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what it means exactly there. Like, I feel like I get it in most other senses. Maybe, maybe it was... Was that around the time when his kind of evil side was stalking the girlfriend? Was it around there? I feel like maybe it was. Could be. Yeah, I, I maybe I'll try to skip to it and find it. But yeah, I'm not sure there. But yeah, with most of the other parts, I feel like it's... Like, I like I remember the first time I watched it. When it ended with him going into the room, and the spider, like, just recoiled. And I, he almost had, like, a... Was it, like, a grin, almost, that he had? I don't know if it was a grin. I had to watch it again, but I, I, I took it as almost like a... Like, oh, great. Like, here we go again. Yeah, something like that. Like, not fear, like you might think. It was just kind of like, oh, shit. Yeah, I... I feel like I feel like this time I thought more it was just like recognizing that this is kind of who he is and he's never going to escape it. 
maybe maybe now after this movie he'll decide hey maybe i'll be in a non-monogamous relationship and try that out <laughs> maybe that'll work out better for him because yeah <laughs> could we just doomed to repeat the same mistakes like his uh his whole college speech was all about which i did think that was a little on the nose that felt a little nolan-esque that his whole uh like course that he was teaching is all about how mistakes repeat themselves and no matter what you do history will just continue to repeat I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yes, I noticed that. But what was the? There was a quote at the beginning, which I thought was going to be more interesting. Or uh, it was almost just like explaining what the movie is going to be like. It was like something about chaos. Um, it said something like, "Um, yeah, I'm just going to look for it. I just saw it a little while." It ago. was something about if you have chaos and you disentangle it, that you'll find order in there. But except said. Say chaos is order, yet undeciphered. Right. Yeah, kind of the structure of the film, just yeah, laid out there. I guess yeah, right. That is exactly what it is. That is that's exactly the structure of the film. I guess it does. I guess I thought it was gonna go a different direction because just the idea of order and chaos is one of the oldest ideas in storytelling. Period. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was gonna be a different kind of story than it was, but. It makes sense, though. Yeah, and I guess you could almost, if you want to kind of do like a bullshit college paper, talk about kind of the chaos aspect of lust versus the order of marriage, and I mean, you can get into that. But... <laughs> oh, that's exactly what that is. I mean, that is 100% what that is. Order is the person, is monogamy and promiscuity is, uh, is chaos. There's no doubt about that. And everybody knows in psychology that the human brain is just attracted to to novel, new. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what sets off the little chemicals in your brain is when you encounter something that's new or somehow unexpected. Absolutely. There's just no, no question about the symbolism of chaos and order as it pertains to that. Yeah, which again, it, it did make me feel a little silly rewatching this to be like, oh, it, you know, it's, I mean, when I first saw this, it was just kind of dip, dipping my toes into surrealist film. Like, I'd seen a couple scattered throughout the years, but it wasn't something that I paid much attention to necessarily. So maybe maybe just coming around to it now, it, it feels demystified because I've just had so much more exposure. I feel like that's pretty normal with these types of movies. You've heard me before say how I noticed decades ago that European films and sometimes Asian films delve much more into this type of stuff than western films typically do or i should say american films typically do Mm -hmm. and it's long been my theory that the reason why the international films delve into this kind of stuff more is because they probably figured out decades ago they're not ever going to be able to compete with american hollywood toe for toe so they have to carve out their little niches um if they're going to make movies that really get people's attention to stand out and so Mm -hmm. why i think so many european and asian movies tend towards the psychological but like in the i guess the surreal way as you would say have you heard me talk about this before yep yep yeah this is one of my oldest rants from long time ago yeah Um, especially when it comes to just the opulence of having such giant budgets yes like yeah you just it's difficult to compete against like six banks crawling a movie <laughs> right so you do like more theater of the mind in a way um mm-hmm. i because i really noticed it when i started 
discovering these movies in the late 90s, early 2000s that were European. Um, the the Abre Los Ojos, the movie that um, that uh, Vanilla Sky is based upon. Oh, didn't realize there was a remake. That's, that was like one of the first I saw of what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, there was a movie called something like Inside Her or something like that. It's a Spanish movie about a lady who gets um, stuck in a coma. Um, and then there's this one of the best skin movies out there, like one of the most sensual movie, uh, sensual or whatever type of movies out there is this one called um, uh, Sex and Lucia. It's a, these are all Spanish movies, all three of these. <laughs> They're all Spanish movies. And uh, Sex and Lucia seems like a, a typical rom-com, but then there's like a weird... I don't know what you want to call it, surrealist or um, there's something supernatural that comes out of nowhere, like two thirds into the movie that like turns everything upside down. I was going to say, sounds like uh, sliding doors, but not, uh... you ever seen that <laughs> by the way, sliding doors? No, I haven't, but now I, I remember the, the movie. Uh, now I'm interested to see it. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not so much in that, that vein. It just, you saying like oh something comes in like turns everything upside down yeah that's kind of sliding doors but oh i'm just watching that spider scene when it, yeah it's climbing over the city weird yeah it was just after the mom was complaining to him about oh you can't you know you can't be satisfied with one woman weird maybe it's supposed to be some sort of symbolism of just the city being him and some i i'm not sure i, I don't know how to break that down <laughs> Sometimes with these kind of movies, I wonder if things like that are just the director just had an image in their mind and they put them in there without. No, I was I I err towards there was something specific in his mind. Yeah, maybe that. Just... I could be wrong, but that's I leaned that way. Maybe that's just me listening to Chodorowsky explaining his films and David Lynch too. David Lynch says the same thing. He'll just be like, "Oh, why was that there? Well, you know, I just I was on the set and I just started thinking about it, and so I put in the movie and." But David Lynch is a—he's a known liar when it comes to that stuff. Where he's just always trying to throw people off. For, I believe that too. I guess the fun of it—I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, it's it's difficult to say for that. But wow, yeah, some of these these top shots, just going over Toronto, really does look beautiful. It almost makes me want to visit the, the city. I mean, I've never had any interest to go myself personally, because I I never really had much interest interest in visiting cities, but looks super pretty except for maybe new york i wouldn't mind visiting there one day but that's about the only city that's ever really had my caught my interest well new york is new york <laughs> oh but i'm surprised we've gone this long without really mentioning uh jake gyllenhaal's performance how, how do you feel like he, he brought with those two characters there i mean he did good but you know we saw prisoners not uh, too long ago mm -hmm. and i was like i was very impressed and enthralled by that by his performance in that movie. In this, it just seemed like, oh yeah, it's Gyllenhaal. Doing Gyllenhaal. Like, not bad in any way. Mm -hmm. But just... And I'm not saying he was mailing it in either. But it just seemed like it was doing like his regular thing. I mean, for either character. Like, in other words, I, I know he's very capable of whatever he had to do in this movie, is what I'm saying. Hmm. That's fair. Yeah, I think when I first saw this, I was kind of riding a high on him with... Um... 
Yeah, prisoners and this. And then I also saw, uh, what was it called? That one where he was the the photographer. Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler. Yeah, I saw those three all pretty close together. So I was like, oh man, this guy, like, he's just excellent. Like, what, what's he going to do next? Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I've really seen him do too much else of interest since then. We did that Spider-Man sequel. He did uh, that Life movie. I don't really feel like I've seen him do much else interesting. So. Uh, perhaps I've heard. I haven't seen it. The one where he plays like an L.A. cop and the movie looks like it's shot almost like handheld. Oh, I don't even know what that is. I want to say it came out like three or four years ago. Him and this other Hispanic actor plays his partner. Oh, Michael Pena, maybe? I I, I think I remember the movie you're talking about. I have not seen it, but I hear people bring it up, though. as something good that he's done. Oh, okay. Oh, and Okja. I forgot he was in Okja. <laughs> the other, um... Oh, who is that direct? Bong Joon-ho film. Oh, and Nocturnal Animals. I mean, I'm just looking through his uh, IMDb at the moment. You ever heard of Nocturnal Animals? Heard of it, but I couldn't tell you what it, what it is or what it's about. Yeah, just because I mentioned earlier today that we, uh, that me and my girlfriend went to go see House of Gucci yesterday. Yeah, Nocturnal Animals was actually directed by Tom Ford, the famous mm. uh, designer. So, Sicario. <laughs> oh, oh, another Denis Villeneuve movie. Yeah. Exactly, I was going to say. Yeah, you've seen that one, right? I've actually only seen the first 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, I, I think that's a good film. It's probably out of the Denis Villeneuve films that I've seen, probably my least favorite, but only because I just don't have as much interest in the story or the, the characters. But it's still a very well-made film. It just doesn't tickle my, my fancy as much as these other films. So. so I think I heard, you know, however many years ago, he was going to make Blade Runner 2049. Hmm. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And I didn't know who the guy was. Then he knew. So I think I went and rented Arrival. Hmm. And I think I watched it. And I thought, wow, okay. Yeah, I can see this. This could be very interesting. And I thought Arrival didn't blow me away. But I thought, no, it was good, though. That was interesting. Now, uh, it subverts expectations to a degree. I thought that was interesting. So then I rent. I went and got Sicario right after, um, and I started watching it, and I thought, oh, this is really good. Like, this is, like, really something I like. Like, this feels like it's in my wheelhouse. And I got 15, 20 minutes in, turn it off, and for some reason I can never continue the movie. Oh, <laughs> Even <wow>. though <laughs> I was all in from what I saw uh, at the beginning. I don't know what yeah, my I mean, issue was with stuff like that. I mean, it's great. It's got a, a wonderful sense of pace. Emily Blunt and Benicio del Toro are both great in it. It's just, I just have less of an interest in those kind of plots. That's that's the only reason that I don't care for it as much as I love these other films. I still think it's great, though. I never saw that sequel. <laughs> when I know that, when I figured out that he wasn't attached to it, I was like, okay. I well, just have got no interest. <laughs> if I ever get to the first movie, I will definitely <laughs> give that sequel a go. Oh, but I but I also quickly wanted to talk about the the women of the movie a little bit. So you really only get the three characters with the the mom who's barely there, and the girlfriend and the wife. Uh, how how do you think that those three came across? That's a difficult question. 
I mean, it's like a huge question. It is kind of, yeah, <laughs> a little huge. Um, why? See, I wasn't paying attention as much in the beginning of the movie. If we were just to talk about his relationship with the girlfriend only. Hmm. What was their big issue about why they had their little fight or whatever? Well, I just remember at one point they were having sex. Mm-hmm. And he was acting in a certain kind of way that she was not appreciative of. Mm-hmm. And that was an issue. Did they have other issues besides that that they that were seen in the movie? Basically, every sex scene was an issue. We would see them having a nice time, talking... They would have sex, and then suddenly she would leave. He would look sad or something. And they did that like three times in a row while he was teaching one of his uh, lessons at the university. Talking about dictators and censorship. And then we'd just see him having sex and then looking dejected. Yeah, then finally we get the full sex scene in the actual end, and then yeah. I guess he did something weird, or maybe she noticed something was off. Like, she never actually explained it. She said she was going to call him the next day, but we never see that scene. See, that's just, it's confusing. Because, now, if you go in with this idea that there's two different people, and if you pretend like it actually is two different people, meaning, like, let's pretend this movie was modeled after The Prestige, and there actually was, like, Mm. twin brothers or something, then it would make sense, all that stuff going on with her, like, why do I like you on some days and I don't like you on other days? Like, oh, that would all make sense with the girlfriend. <sighs> but because it's the same person. But what is it exactly? Is I don't really. You know, because the sex gets weird, or does is that? I was just having a thought. Maybe none of this is actually happening, and every sex scene that we see with her is the last one. Because there's always there's always. Her walking out and him looking dejected. Maybe he just keeps reliving the sexy when she realized ah, that shit. she was. You know what? You know what? I think you're onto something. And yeah. are you saying that the real version of the sex scene was her discovering that he had like a mark from a ring? Yeah, that it could be. I'm not sure because again, they never really. No, but you know, that would make sense though. That would make it make sense, what I'm talking... Because otherwise, like I said, it doesn't make sense. Like, something's missing. Yeah, and again, we kept seeing it in, like, snapshots and him talking about things repeating, so... Yeah, again, I'm not too sure. There's definitely things with this movie that I feel like... No. <sighs> that explanation makes a lot of sense. That there was the one true version of events that we happen to see chronologically at the end of the movie, but he's, like replaying it over and over through most of the runtime. But that leads us to the other issue. So that happened, I guess. But the fact that they appear to both die in the car crash, that probably never happened, right? That's probably uh, Mm -hmm. symbolism or... That's that's what I thought the first time I, wa- I watched it. That was like him thinking that that side of him died. Yes. Like maybe the car crash never happened, but yes. Now I got another stupid idea, which probably isn't true. <laughs> but okay. Maybe this is this version of like the way station in uh, two thousand one, where he like goes to that place and he's like that old man, kind of like living in a pocket reality, 
yes. like living out the last of his life. Maybe this is maybe he was like in a coma or something or died, and this is him just kind of processing what his life was. Again, that's a stupid theory. I don't agree with that, but I don't. I don't think I don't think that's what it was, but yeah. <laughs> I think it works, and I think the way station analogy is still appropriate, regardless of if he's in a coma or not, because essentially that's what his character is doing through this whole movie is living in a, like a little pocket universe mm-hmm. going over these. Yeah. So it makes sense. Um, yeah. And with these kind of movies, I never try to think about them too literally with like what's actually happening because I don't feel like that super helpful because there's no information to really say about what's actually happening. But yeah. So symbolically, I think that car wreck was just, yeah, symbolically that's the end of this relationship. Like we will never exist to each other again. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Uh, well, confusing. Yeah, and I even thought the the smashed window because we kind of linger on it almost looked like a spider web. So I was like, oh, I don't know if that was intentional, but I, it could have been. I, I don't know. Maybe just all smashed windows kind of look like spider webs. But <laughs> so yeah, I imagine all the stuff with the girlfriend all happened. I guess prior to the movie or yeah, sometime prior. And I guess during the time of the movie, he's just with his wife, his pregnant wife. And I guess he's just processing all this stuff in the past. Yeah. 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 It's difficult to know where the the character is really at. while all this is happening, but I do really like that moment where it's kind of a creepy moment when they kind of switch and the bad one's like, okay, I'm gonna go off with the girlfriend, and the good one decides to do the same thing and goes off with the wife, and kind of has like a moment of realization. Mm-hmm. When he sees the picture that was torn, and he like breaks down and cries and apologizes to her. Yeah, then we see the the creepy sex scene with the other one, and I thought that was a really great kind of climax for the movie. Yes. I, I thought the dramatic weight hit for both sides, so. Oh, no, that scene just happens to be playing right now. That's funny. <laughs> so, this is like a three-dimensional story told from a fourth-dimensional perspective, I guess. Um, and that explanation I just gave explains how certain stuff in the movie makes sense and how other stuff doesn't make sense. Is because of that. Uh, w- which explanation? <laughs> this is a three-dimensional story told through a fourth-dimensional prism, or seen, or experienced through a fourth-dimensional prism. Yeah. Well, well, what do you mean by that exactly? With the fourth-dimensional. The fourth dimension is time. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And like an in interstellar, like when you go into the, when uh, McConaughey goes into the Tesseract. And the Tesseract is supposed to be like a way for a three-dimensional being to comprehend the fourth dimension. Mm. Um, so it's not a true representation because the unnamed beings are trying to communicate with McConaughey. And the Tesseract is like a way to do that. Um, so it's not a perfect conduit. Um but it's a way to visualize four dimensions if you're like a three-dimensional person. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way to see everything happening at once, um, where sequence doesn't really matter. Mm. Well, emotionally, mentally, that's what Jake Gyllenhaal's character, he's looking at all the events of his life through this like fourth dimensional prism where order doesn't matter. Like, chronological order doesn't matter. So you can just go in and out. It's like you're in the test rack and you can go in and out to different spots um, as you wish and experience things out of sequence. It's like super impactful moments kind of blending in together and trying to reconcile how he could be these two people when maybe he doesn't feel like he is, but he's got this other side that he can't control. Yes, and I feel like if I had more time, I'd be able to think of... There's like some other good examples of movies... I just can't think specifically which ones they are where you get to the end and there's like this big reveal like an M. Night Shyamalan reveal and then it all makes sense like oh that's how this worked I was actually thinking of Arrival how they it's oh, actually yes. got a similar technique in this to this movie you're right you're actually right that's that is one example right there yeah it's the same kind of thing where all everything's in a big jumble but again it's not like Memento where it's done stylistically for that reason. It's more as a, a purpose in the plot. But, yeah, the, the, these actually feel quite similar. No, but you're right. It is like it is like a rival. But see, when I when I saw Rival, though, that's why I was thinking, oh, this is like Vinu doing like an Interstellar type thing. It's like, but, mm. that's the thing. Him and, why do they have so many works that seem to parallel each other? Because, again, <laughs> even though it's not a direct parallel, there is a connection to Prestige. And what year was that? Was that like 2013 or something preposterous like that? Uh, Prestige was 2006. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was that long? Wait, hold on. It was, God, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Yeah, yeah, 2006. That is crazy. Yeah, I mean, think about uh, Hugh Jackman in 2013 doing Prisoners. Look quite a lot older. Let me tell you what's cool about The Prestige being 2006, which it seems like such a post-2010 movie to me stylistically because um you know i transformers which we talked about a bit a while back um don't you release things like not chronologically on your podcast feed yeah i do because i feel like people will hear stuff and they'll be like dude isn't he referencing something that happens like two episodes later but anyway uh so anyway like when i talk about transformers one and two one of the things I always say about them is they so look the time that they came out because of the color grading that was all fashionable at the time. Mm-hmm. Another great example of that color grading is Casino Royale of that time period. And another great example is uh, Dawn of the Dead, 2004. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> it was such the thing in those days. And the fact that The Prestige came out in 2006 and has none of it, I think is a testament to Nolan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because that is shocking. That, And that's why I totally thought the movie was from, like, post-2010. It's because it does not look like how all the other big movies looked. Circa 2006. Yeah, it's funny, because even Batman falls into that category a little bit. Batman Begins. You think so? So, I guess, I guess yeah, he just wanted to really make it feel like it wasn't a part of any certain decade with well he definitely made it look that movie in particular it's not Sophia but it has a brown 
something. Like, like if the Matrix movies have that weird green or whatever. Mm. Um, Batman Begins yeah. has this brown overtone, but but it's not as stylized, I would say, as uh, those other movies I mentioned. No, it's definitely more played back, a little bit more into the to the Dawn of the Dead kind of played back. Because even though Dawn of the Dead almost has like a high contrast kind of filter over it, it's nowhere near like something like Transformers or like Star Trek 09, I feel like also fits in there. <laughs> 09 was moving on. Uh, another one that's pretty high contrast or whatever you want to call it, I would say more than 2009 is uh, is Abrams' uh, Mission Impossible 3. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, huge. Yeah, one of the only detractors I think for that movie because I really like that movie, but I never like the way it looks. Two thousand nine is stylized, but it's moving away uh, and modernizing from what it just came before it. Yeah, lens flareizing. <laughs> I never like the way two thousand nine looks either. I've always liked the way two, uh, Transformers looks. I feel like that's one of those movies that actually that the that particular filtered look actually really works for it. But a lot of other movies, I just find it obnoxious. I, it actually is strange to me. Well, when I watch them on 4K, the latter two or three live action ones, and I'm not talking about Bumblebee, but the the mm, last mm-hmm. two or three Michael Bay's, they don't have that look anymore. Yeah, not at and all. And it makes them look kind of like sterile and very digital. Yes, I, I actually like it better than the middle two, but I I I prefer that. Oh, I prefer the the original look rather than yeah those later ones. They do look just completely flat. It's it's, it's strange, especially the last night. <laughs> last night looks so flat. It's it's yeah it's like visually boring. But no, but enemy I definitely need to see again under more ideal conditions because it's a movie that's it is in my wheelhouse, but it's how can I describe it? It's like Eric comfort food. Like <laughs> it's like we know you'll like this. Like mm. it's not gonna like blow you away and it's not gonna be like the greatest meal of your life. But you'll like it. And that's the kind of movie I think it is for me. Oh that's good to hear then. <laughs> cause yeah, I've got plenty of movies like this that I'd I'd love to show you because Cause as opposed to other movies that I also like, but they leave me a little bit more shook. Um, and that would be something like The Witch or The Lighthouse, um, which are also in my wheelhouse, just like this movie is. But those ones, as I was sitting there in the theater, I was like almost figuratively shaking in my seat, like with my mm. thoughts. Um, even if I wasn't 100% sure why at the time. Yeah, and they all share that same kind of omnipresent, oppressive tone. The movie's just trying to push you down in your feet. Yes. Now... I love that. To be fair, if I had seen this movie at the theater in 2013, it probably would have been more impactful on me mm. than the way I watched it today. Yeah, I'm not sure if this this even had much of a release. I don't remember it coming out in the theater. I just remember seeing the Blu-ray. But I don't think so. I seems like it was more of a, a Canadian release. Mm. Um... And I, cause I think I saw it only made like 3.5 million box office, which, 
And I think, I don't know, I don't understand how international film works. But it seems to me that that's the way, because like this movie was heavily financed between Canada and Spain. Mm -hmm. So these are almost like publicly financed movies, in a sense. Yep. Um, Like the BBC or something. Yeah, a lot of Canadian films are done that way. So I don't think they necessarily worry too much about making their money back because yeah it was just you know funded with taxes so they more they're more interested in making a statement and winning an award um rather than making money per se yeah i i watch a lot of of random canadian independent films and yeah so many of them are just completely funded by the government so that that's something i've always appreciated that the canadian government tries to focus on supporting the arts because yeah a movie like this is not really built for financial success necessarily so it'd be nice if they were but i i don't think audiences will go in droves to a movie like this which is again one of the reasons that nolan i'm of it doesn't quite make movies like this but i'm of two minds about the whole thing about publicly funded versus privately funded um i get the argument for and against both but perhaps because in my DNA I'm American, I lean more towards the privately funded stuff. <laughs> um, whether it's a small conglomerate or big time Hollywood, I, I still lean towards, I think, the privately funded stuff. Because uh, it has something to do with being an American. It's just like how I know British people to a degree hold the BBC dear and, and, and its mission, I guess, so-called. You know, to bring to light things that wouldn't necessarily have the funding if we only lived in a private world. I mm-hmm. get the nobility of it, but then part of me is just like, I don't know. Well, I, I think about it this way. There shouldn't there shouldn't be so much stuff that, that would never survive on its own. Um, well, if you want to... Every once in a while, they're... Huh? I was going to say, well, if you want to talk about that, I think about all the corporations that get giant subsidies from the government. I mean, if they're going to give them fucking money, give it to artists, too. So, <laughs> Well, subsidies is a whole other subject. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that we could be pro and anti against. But, but, and I get, not all the private stuff is good, because there's a whole bunch of stupid stuff. But, oh, yeah. I don't know, but it's something about, I do like when someone has skin in the game, though. Even if it's like a small, you know boutique conglomerate you know not like a big time studio like an indie film but still private i don't know now i I think it helps artists to not have to worry about is the audience of my particular time going to accept this or am i going to make something that's going to go out for people of different generations to experience because if your whole career thrives on surviving in the moment you'll be more likely to try to make something that's going to hit in your particular decade hit for just that time and that can create some really dated crap. No, no. This is theoretical what we're talking about or what I'm about to say. But I like... I think there's a magic place in between. Um, between having the full backing of the studio model but then owing them you know, their returns. That's, you know, that's one extreme end of it. Then there's the opposite end, which is this is all entirely public funded. You don't know any... You don't owe anyone anything, just do you. So those are the two extremes. I like somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. where you're not just trying to be about the bottom line. Um, 
but you're not just free to do whatever you want either. I like you to be a little bit scared uh, about not making a movie that appeals to a certain size of an audience. I think there's a magical in-between space, and I think that's theoretically, ideally, the best place for for creativity. Because it's it's Goldilocks to me. You can't be too soft or too hard. It's got to be like right in the middle, and I think that's where the magic happens, where you feel just the amount of pressure but not too much pressure. And zero pressure, I think, is a bad idea in general. Um, yeah. Somewhere in between. And I always cite something like the original Star Wars as being something like that. Um, where, there, yes, there was money, but it wasn't unlimited. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was still tons of limits where you just can't do whatever you want. Uh, whether it was because of technology or money or whatever. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and you have an artist who's pushing against himself to try to create something that's going to be financially successful. Sometimes that definitely works. Star Wars being an example. Although when you get to the prequels, when, yeah, he was like, oh exactly. no, I lost a lot of money in my divorce. I need to try to make something that's going to appeal to everyone, go to the biggest audience possible, and then you get the crap that he produced. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a big, yeah, it's a big gray area. And that's why I'm super interested interested to see what Christopher Nolan's going to do next because he's feeling the burn after Tenet and so I'm curious if he's going to go in a more financially and commercially viable approach or continue on going more into obscurity which I feel like Tenet kind of did not not super like I feel like that's still more a blockbuster than it is an art film but but broaching the line of the two god I love that movie um I forgot what was the movie that was recently that came out recently that Dune was compared to. Um, what was the big movie that came out after Dune or just before it? I think it was Venom, maybe. Oh, I didn't see it, so I'm not sure people compared him. But hmm. no, no, no. But let's say it was Venom. I'm not sure if it was Venom or not. But the reason they were being compared, not only because they came out close to each other. Or maybe, oh, you know what? I think it was Eternals. It was Eternals. It was Eternals. Oh, Eternals. Yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. It was compared because Eternals was more expensive than Dune. Mm. But when you watch the movies, and if you were to guess which was more expensive, (laughs) I don't (laughs) think Eternals is what you would choose. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that was the point. Thanks to Um, the MCU cheaping out on their their, uh, CGI studios, which they've been doing for like like six or seven years now it's so embarrassing yes i do think it's i do think it's an issue but what they do i believe the mcu marvel you know they farm it out so you know Mm -hmm. they have many multiple different studios working on different scenes you know Mm -hmm. so i think there'll be some cgi shots in whatever mcu movie that are okay and then you'll just see these other ones that are just like one. Yeah, it looks like it was produced in like 2005. It's like, whoa, yes. how do we drop this drastically? It's Yeah, it's a real embarrassment. I don't understand how they don't see the problem with it. Strange. I don't know what to say. I think they just farm it out, and then at a certain point, they just have what they have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that could be. I guess they have their dates uh, by Disney, so they're like, oh, fuck. We don't have yeah. time to replace this horrible shot, so I guess we gotta, we're gotta we stuck with it. Yeah. Oh, but uh, I, I guess we should probably wrap up Enemy here. <laughs> Do you have any uh, any final things you want to say before we jump into final thoughts? 
I guess they're kind of the same, but no, it's just because it, in, in in runtime, it's, the movie goes by pretty quick. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know it's weird because it is like many Villeneuve movies. It feels like a slow burn, mm-hmm. yet it's quick at the same time. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's just it's it's sad that I'm still gonna be thinking about hot how hot both of those ladies were after we're done talking about the movie. Well, if if you like the wife, I would love to cover Cosmopolis and Maps to the Stars. I mean, they both star Robin Pattinson. Uh, what what's her name? Um, Julianne Moore gives a brilliant kind of no vanity performance in Map to the Stars. So I and, and they're both these weird art films that. I've wanted to show other people, but I'm kind of like, ah, I don't know what people would think about these ones. I'm not even sure what I think about them necessarily. So it'd be cool to discuss them. Well, I'm always open to it. However, we haven't gotten into the situation yet, and it'll happen someday, where I can't remember the last example of this I ran into, but a movie that goes too far and to where I, it goes into pretension territory. But I can't remember the last time that happened something else yeah we might get there if we ever get to some of the jodorowsky films like uh, the holy mountain a lot of people love the holy mountain they hold it up as one of the great surrealist films i've always kind of been like it's got a lot of great aspects but by the end it loses me almost completely so (laughs) and even though i love the holy mountain i i just feel like the last like maybe 20 minutes i'm like whoa this movie's almost completely lost me so (laughs) So if we ever get to that one, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But Oh yeah, and you said you watched the first uh, Jodorowsky film, right? Fondo and Lee? I started it. I have not seen a lot of it yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one's yeah that one's a little... Yeah. It's a good one, but... Yeah, maybe not the best place to start, but... Oh, but for my final thoughts... Yeah, I, this is the one that really pulled me in for Villeneuve's films. I haven't really seen anything that compares to it, necessarily, except for Arrival... Most of the other stuff that he's done since this point has been a lot more mainstream. So I hope he goes back to this at some point. I, I feel like it's a good mode for him. Uh, similar to something like, like I mentioned, Charlie Kaufman or, or David Cronenberg in his later years. Yeah, I, yeah, I really appreciate that kind of film. Um, I think it looks great. I think Jake Gyllenhaal, like you said, delivers a good kind of baseline performance. Nothing super standout, but just pretty solid. And I love the music, so <laughs> yeah, def- definitely a film that I'll continue to go back to. Yeah, and I know you don't rate things, but I think off the top of my head, I give this a three and a half out of five. Um, I just went to Rotten Tomatoes; it's seventy-one percent with mm. the critics, sixty-four with the audience. A little blurb says, "Thanks to a strong performance from Jake Gyllenhaal and smart direction from Denis Villeneuve." Enemy hits the mark as a tense, uncommonly adventurous thriller. I think it's a horrible description, but yeah. whatever. That description sounds to me like you're taking the movie for face value. Yeah, um, that like gives the audience just, no expectation of what they're going to get. <laughs> I think you take it as there's literally these two guys who look really similar. <laughs> that is funny. Someone would go in and think, yeah, it's just a regular thriller. No abstract quality at all. And, and I would imagine that most people who saw this movie walked away with that thought. Oh, how how could they? I mean, how could they? Especially with all the spider stuff. I'm the spider stuff's got a signal to you. Oh, this is not a regular story. No, I think they're gonna be like the spider. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what that means. 
no, no. I think majority of audiences who just walked into this on a Friday night date, I think they believe that there was these two separate men who happened to look identical, and the actor one ended up killing himself unintentionally <laughs> with the girlfriend, and the school teacher is somehow having amazing sex with the dude's <laughs> wife. Well, that's, that's got to be a really unsatisfying movie for them. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine liking it. I think, no, honestly, I think that's why it's 64% with the audience. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense, yeah, because <laughs> it'd still be a great-looking movie visually, good actors, good music, but yeah, if, if that was the plot, it'd be pretty stupid. <laughs> so I think that's, like I said, more than 50% of the audience walked away with that thought in their head. Damn. Well, I guess I guess that's the the gamble you take making art pictures. Not everyone's gonna get it, so yeah. But I guess that's why he's strayed more to the more blockbustery realm, except for Arrival. Arrival's a little bit more abstract, but that's more in, in some way a gimmick rather well, than. Well, there's a... there's numerous videos on YouTube um, explaining why, even though VD was probably trying to go going for the same success with 2049 and Dune. There's numerous videos pointing out why they believe it didn't click uh, with general audiences of 2049, but why it seems to have it with Dune. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, most of them say it's to, to dumb it down or to, not, to summarize, they basically say that Dune hits more traditional plot points that are satisfying to an audience, whereas 2049 does not so much. That's a short yeah. version explanation. At least in the first part of the story. Because once he gets told the stuff of completely subverting Paul, I'm sure that would turn people off. Because, <laughs> yeah. Oh, we'll see about that. Space Hitler, as some Dune fans call him. I never liked that. It seemed too simplistic to call him Space Hitler, but I'm sure people would find that super off-putting when we get to that kind of stuff, if we do. But, uh, yeah, thanks thanks for coming on again. I, I hope you, uh, you know, enjoyed the, the movie here, and I feel like I discussed everything I wanted to mention, so. Anytime. It's funny when sometimes movies like this, it doesn't spark as much conversation as you thought it would compared to something like, I don't know, something like Deep Red. Oh. I feel like we went off on, like, a whole bunch of tangents, but, oh, you never know. I saw that's available on 4K right now in Arrow Video. Oh, oh wow, I, I wasn't aware. Hmm, that's cool. Yep. Yep, it's out there. I was thinking about it, but I had all those other ones on my mind too. Those other purchases I mentioned. Yeah, and, I, and I'm I'm sure Sean will want to break out the two Suspirias for a remake versus original at some point. And I also plan to see those at some point. Well, uh, that's I guess we're at the end here. Thank you very much, Eric, for coming on again, and happy that we got to cover these two Denis Villeneuve films that are kind of paired up. And yeah, maybe we'll cover some more of his films in the future. And uh, we'll catch you all in the next one. Peace.
just to briefly cut in before we start this little stinger section here, uh, this little extra bit here was a piece of the Prisoners episode, but it just went a little bit too long, so I had to snip it. Um, and I'd figure since I'm releasing these in the same week, I would just include it with this one here on Enemy. Um, so if anyone's confused as to why it seems like we're not talking about this particular Denis Villeneuve film, that's why. Well, but if you listen to this after the fact, yeah, we, we covered Prisoners as well, just before we did this episode. So yeah, hope you enjoy the stinger. Yeah, and I'll just say this as a personal recommendation to you. Have you ever heard of the Team Deacons podcast? No. Yeah, Roger Deakins does a podcast with his wife, or maybe he's just partner. I'm oh, sure maybe you told me about this before. Yeah, he interviews people that he worked with in the past. He did a great episode with Jake Gyllenhaal, and it really, really grounds Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, the two of them come across as, like, quite close friends, in a way, and and he talks about his process, and uh, it's just an excellent ex episode, and, and also just listening to Roger Deakins talk about his process in film is super interesting, so uh, definitely something to check out if you're interested in that kind of stuff. That does sound super cool. I thought you were going to say there's like these fanboys, uh, like these teenage fanboys of Deakins, of Deacon, and this is their pod. That's what I thought you were going <laughs> to it does sound like <laughs> the title definitely sounds like that but yeah it's really roger you know, interviewing his collaborators it's super cool podcast absolutely recommend it and if i remember correctly i i feel like they talked a lot about this movie and uh, jarhead which i feel like are the two big collaborations between deacons and jake gyllenhaal which i haven't seen jarhead in like well over a decade i I don't even remember that movie, but I feel like I should check it out again. <laughs> I, I was this massive fan of Hall from Donnie Darko, and I wanted to watch everything he was in after Donnie Darko. And then I've talked about this a little bit on the other podcast, on Best Pick or something, how I used to have this penchant for any war movies, well, U.S.-connected mm. war movies, especially. And then... All of a sudden, one day I decided I'm good. I don't need to watch anymore. <laughs> and I usually cite Black Hawk Down as being that turning point. And that, that's true. Because hmm. Black Hawk Down was the last traditional war movie that I really, really thought highly of. Um, not that I haven't liked others since. But I was just like, no, but I'm done. Like, I'm hanging up my Kevlar helmet. Like I'm good. I'm 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 less. I'm gonna be less focused now on on this genre. But even though Black Hawk Down was that turning point, um, Jarhead was like the nail in the coffin. Where I wanted to see it, I saw it, and I was like, okay, now I, I'm really done. I'm really done with the war genre. Cause I don't know. I don't know how to explain it now, and I haven't seen the movie in how many years, Jarhead, but it yeah. it, uh, it struck me as a fine, competent movie, but I felt like it was made for people who have never been in the military. Um, whereas something like Full Metal Jacket, I think it's for everyone. It's for everyone who's been in the military and everyone who's never been in the military. Like, it just works across the board. I would even say that for Platoon, perhaps. Same thing. What did you what did you feel about uh, The Hurt Locker? That was the one where I was like, you know what? 
I feel like a lot of these military movies have con- uh, kind of lead characters that don't really have anything to them except they're this soldier, and that's supposed to be the dramatic weight, and there's nothing else there. That's what I felt with that movie. <laughs> I'm okay with that, but even though that movie's different, I think I said something like this. Because, uh, you know, we discussed that in the podcast as well, Jarhead. I mean, not Jarhead, um, Hurt Locker, which is, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it because I was in my phase of I'm done with war movies. So that's why I didn't watch it right off the bat. It didn't, it it did not look like it was something that was going to cause me to go back on my, on my sabbatical, um, like to pull me out of retirement. So I was like, (laughs) nope. And then of course I did watch it and I watched it and I thought, okay, that was a good movie, but a little bit like this. Uh, yes, it was effective, the tenseness and the thriller aspect and the suspense. But thanks, but no thanks. I don't need to get on that ride. Um, I don't need it. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, I never need to watch that movie ever again. No. Now, I'm okay with this movie taking me on an emotional ride. I'm okay with it. But I don't want to watch something like Hurt Locker take me on an emotional ride, even even if it accomplishes that. I'm fine, thank you. And now I just remember what I was going to say earlier, which was... Awesome. Another thing about this movie is that... Okay, so when I watch most horror movies in general, um, they don't affect me. They don't do anything for me. They don't, they don't scare me. They don't make me jump out of my chair. In general, that's across the board with me in horror movies, especially modern ones. Um, hmm. and famously or infamously when I saw Hereditary in the in the movie theater um, I was almost never scared watching the movie I was almost never nervous or highly nervous um, and when the movie hits its climax I mean towards the end when it hits its climax I almost couldn't control my giggling in the movie theater and it wasn't giggles of joy it was it was giggles of oh my god this is so silly not silly as in unbelievable but silly because it was just played silly i mean it wasn't intentional but it was played silly maybe it was no but but i I was talking earlier i kept talking about seeing the strings and levers being pulled so oh I think what happened was, um, so you're watching the end of Hereditary in the movie theater, and the director has this big red button that he can push, and when he pushes it, it sends like a mild electric shock through your seat in the movie theater, and so when the director started pushing that button at the end climax of that movie, everyone in the theater with me was like squirming and like, oh my god, ah! oh shit or like hiding their eyes or cringing you know and i and the director was pushing that same button and it was sending that electric impulse into my seat and it just tickled me and i kept giggling that's what happened (laughs) uh when i saw hereditary and i was trying to suppress it but i was just like the more he kept pushing that button of shock and awe the more i was like "Oh, oh god Oh my god! And the, and the more I saw people around me being uncomfortable and cowering, the more it made me want to giggle. Um, so anyway, my point is, 
I see a movie like Hereditary, which many people call, you know, a very scary or unsettling movie. Many, many people have that opinion of Hereditary. I don't. I mean, as it pertains to me. And that's how I am in a lot of horror movies. That they don't really affect me in the way that the directors intend. Yet, something like this, I'm completely affected. You know what I'm saying? Oh, of course. I mean, this this hits so much closer to home. I just find it funny that, yeah, I'm immune to horrors, but but I'm not immune to this, whatever this is. Yeah, I remember as a kid, um, from like six, six and older, my parents would be like, oh, you want to go play at the playground that's about a, like maybe a 10 minute walk away from the house? Oh, go ahead. And I was just thinking how these, how concerned these parents were just them walking back home. Like there was so many chances that I could have been kidnapped as a kid. I remember I, my own siblings that were 10 years plus younger. I would always be very concerned and very much anywhere they would went, go, I would want to go with them because I was like, hey, you know, you got to watch out. Like, I mean, it's a fucking scary world. <laughs> There's no... I'm not scared of a witch cult uh, trying to turn me into some sort of Satan spawn like Hereditary. I'm fucking scared of some psycho. I wanted to take my, my younger siblings. <laughs> I don't know. When I was six or seven... I could be anywhere outside the house, you know, without direct supervision as well. But that being said, I wouldn't leave like a hundred yard or a hundred meter uh, radius from my home at age six or seven. Um, hmm. I, I would stay in that range on my own without being told. And if something odd came about, like an odd stranger, an odd vehicle. I would have enough sense and or fear that I would kind of cower away from something like that. Uh, if that all of a sudden mm. showed up like in my neighborhood. And I definitely wouldn't randomly go into someone's home or into someone's car. I would, even at age six or seven, I'd still be like, whoa, I don't know about that. Like, <laughs> you know, so I don't know, though. I mean, it's hard to compare uh, to, the, to the kids and the parents in this. In this. And plus wasn't or i don't know what was the age of the kids the ones who got kidnapped i can't remember uh, i would think around like seven or eight maybe nine at the most but i would think younger did they seem yeah so again young? seven or eight i was all over the place um but i would still avoid you know, kid like you'd have to literally like run and tackle me and 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 you know put some chloroform over my mouth. Like, you'd have to go through all those steps if you were going to try to kidnap me when I was seven or eight. Well, that's fair. But still, this this kind of threat is, is much more of a reality than, again, like a like a satanic cult, like an hereditary. <laughs> so it's, right. it's a little bit of a different kind of playing field. And again, one of the reasons that... Again, one of the reasons that people don't make movies like this as much unless they're making, like, some really low-budget kind of exploitative stuff I, I don't really go to see cop films very often I've, I've never had much interest in them I don't find cops overly sympathetic or interesting characters most of the time <laughs> so usually when I see cop movies I'm just like eh, I, I'll just avoid that so but some of them are good the best cop thing I can think of that's worth viewing is uh the HBO series, The Wire. Oh, yeah. I've only seen the first season of that, but the first season was great. 
Well, I've only seen the first season too. So. <laughs> and I was sold uh, mm-hmm. on that. It it was extremely realistic to me. Extremely, extremely realistic. Yeah, that's my problem with so many cop movies is I feel like they're so Hollywood and fake a lot of the time. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like real cops. This feels like, oh, you're giving us the bad cop just so you can feel like justified by pretending that this is what real cops are like. Like something like Training Day always felt like that to me. I've never liked Training Day. I just feel like that movie felt super fake in Hollywood. But and then of course there's a uh, what is it called? Serpico? Serpico? No, not Serpico. Mm, yes, Serpico. Yeah. Wait, no, but I'm thinking I'm naming the wrong thing. Um, Serpico is the movie from the '70s, right? Uh, I think it's '80s with Pacino. Oh, '80s. That's not the one I meant to name. <laughs> Oh, okay. I meant to name um, 